previously on Jonesing. Like I could literally just feel like he was right here with me, God. And um, that's a feeling that you cannot describe, but I knew he was there. And like, I just could feel that Brandon was at peace. Brandon wasn't, he, he, he was free. This podcast was produced by the Partnership for Public Health, a nonprofit organization in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. If you know someone struggling with addiction, have them call the National Helpline 1-800-662-HELP. Thanks for tuning into the first season of Jonesing, our podcast about the science behind opioid addiction. I am Zerubabel Asfaw. We're going to take a look at the state of medically assisted treatment through the lives of people who are starting it, are in recovery, and those who couldn't find their path to sobriety. Medication-assisted treatment. We're talking methadone, suboxone, and Vivitrol. Those may be the best methods we have right now to treat opioid addiction, but not that many people are using them. Less than 30%. We wanted to find out why. My name is Susan Baldridge, and I co-produced this podcast with Zerubbabel, a third-year pre-med student. You may have noticed his accent. He's from Ethiopia. And that was Susan. She was an investigative journalist for the past 19 years before coming to the public health field. She has written over 200 articles about the opioid epidemic since it began five years ago in quite little Lancaster County. Also, you may have noticed her accent. She's from Pennsylvania. Some of you may not know what the word jonesing means. We're going to let people in the community tell you what they think. Jonesing is when you want a chemical in your body, and it's not there, and it hurts. I jones off of cigarettes. That's the only thing I'm addicted to, cigarettes and coffee. What are we discussing today on Jonesing Zerubbabel? No, I say Zerubbabel like I usually do. (laughs) What are we discussing today, Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel. That's what I said, Zerubbabel. 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 Almost there. But for today, evidently, we're not discussing my name. Do you have a nickname we can use? No, unless you count the different ways you've been saying it so far. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I will practice, but let's go on to a more pressing and important topic for our listeners. Today, we are taking a look at the brain. Actually, we're looking inside the brain of someone who has become addicted to opioids during and after addiction. Well, we're going to need a doctor for that. Yes, we will be interviewing Dr. Thomas J. Gates, a Harvard-educated physician who knows a lot about the workings of addiction and who also works at Lancaster Health Center in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. My name is Dr. Tom Gates. I'm a family doctor um, working at the Lancaster Health Center, and I am a buprenorphine prescriber. Um, and just here to um, try to increase people's awareness of the availability and uh, success rate for what we call medically-assisted therapy for opioid addiction. Welcome, Dr. Gates. Could you tell us a little bit about the effects of opioid use on the brain? When we're talking about addiction, every um, class of medicines somewhat different, but what we're mainly dealing with and what I deal with here is more opioid addictions. So that could be heroin, it could be you know things like Oxycontin, prescription medications that have been abused. And all those medications work on the level of the opioid receptors in the brain. 
And with time, what happens is those opioid receptors become kind of upregulated. And so um, a couple things happen is, number one, people who are abusing opioids, or even if they're using opioid pain medications appropriately for legitimate pain, they eventually develop some degree of tolerance, meaning that they need higher and higher doses to get the same effect. The tolerance is one thing. And then the second part of that is that when they stop, if they try to go cold turkey or they get arrested and they're in jail or, or they're just trying to change, um, they will go through a very disagreeable state called withdrawal. So they will get all kinds of physical symptoms. And most people who are addicted will tell you that after the first few weeks, the first couple months, they're not using heroin to get high. They're using heroin to prevent withdrawal. Where are those receptors located in the brain? So they're in the limbic system, um, which is where we perceive pain. And also um, um, tends to be the emotional, the kind of mammalian part of our brain, but not the human, not the cortex part, not the higher functioning part. So we could call it the primitive brain. Whenever anyone talks about opioids adhering to brain receptors, I have this mental picture of little round plugs in the brain springing up, catching the opioids, and then ducking back down into the brain again. This is kind of what happens. But as opioids wash over the brain again and again, Dr. Gates is saying that the receptors become less responsive to the opioids, and they don't produce euphoria or even the same amount of pleasure as they once did. The first time they ever had heroin, it was like... It was such a strong high that they they spend their life trying to recapture that. But within a very few weeks, they're not recapturing that. They're oh. just trying to avoid withdrawal. You know, why it's such an intense emotion, I don't know. It has something to do that those receptors are there, right? We're not just introducing something foreign into the brain. It's something that the brain has a capacity to hang on to. How long does it actually take someone to be physically addicted to opioids? And how does that change the brain chemistry for someone who is on those opioids for a while? So generally, it can happen in a matter of two, three, four weeks. It varies a lot. There's a lot of individual variation about mm-hmm. how long it would take to actually you know, develop tolerance or develop withdrawal when you um, stop the medications. But... In as little as three or four weeks, if people have been taking opioids regularly and then they suddenly stop, they might get withdrawal symptoms. And and the presence of a withdrawal symptom when you stop is how we define dependence. Dependence is not the same as addiction. So people who are legitimately taking pain medications may in fact have a withdrawal um, symptoms when they stop the medicine, but they're not abusing. They're not... um, taking more than the prescribed dose. So so dependence is part of addiction, but addiction is when it, the kind of loss of control when people are doing things they didn't intend. I didn't think of dependence and addiction being two different things. How do you describe addiction? So addiction is a very complicated phenomenon. It's not all the biochemistry and all the opioid receptors and so forth. I think uh, kind of like alcohol, you're 
you're always a recovering alcoholic. You're never a recovered alcoholic. You always have the potential to relapse. It's like those the brain and the opioid receptors are always ready to trigger a relapse. If you happen to go out with the old crowd and they're still using drugs, and they have drugs there and you use even once. I mean, I've seen that a lot of times. People do well for six months, they use heroin once. Within a week, they're back to their full addiction. I don't know if I can give you a biochemical reason for that. It's just um, these guys are injecting multiple times a day. Most of them have been addicted for years, even 10 years. The amount of reinforcement that they've gotten from that is not gonna go away in a little while. It's going to be even a lifelong possibility. I know you have a long history with medically assisted therapy, or MAT. So you might be biased, but we're looking into the science of MAT, and we want to know if it really works. The medications I prescribe work on the brainstem, where the opioid receptors are, but addicts have also rewired their frontal lobe. So the usual kind of inhibitions... um, rational thought processes and so forth have been scrambled by their time of addiction. And to rewire the frontal lobe, that's where the counseling comes in. So that's the way I explain it to patients. The medications help the brainstem, the limbic system, help the physical symptoms of withdrawal, um, but they still need the drug and alcohol counseling in order to, the way I put it, is to rewire your frontal lobe And that takes months or even a year. So I tell people once they start on medication-assisted therapy, they should think in terms of not even thinking of going off of it. They can reduce the dose and stuff, but they should stay on it for at least a year before they think about getting off. I knew those on MAT are supposed to be in counseling, but I didn't realize that the counseling works on a different part of the brain. People often say whenever an individual enrolls in an MAT program, that individual is replacing one drug for another. For example, heroin for another legal drug such as Suboxone. What do you have to say to that? Well, on one level, it's true that they're they're taking a prescription, a controlled medication in order to not go through withdrawal. Most of my patients will say, for the first time in years, I feel normal. So they're not getting high or anything like that. You, People who have a history of heroin or opioid use, they're not getting high from buprenorphine. It's what's called a partial agonist. So it activates those opioid receptors enough to prevent withdrawal, but not enough to um, produce you know, mental ecstasy or anything like that. It may have some effect on pain. So sometimes people with chronic pain will get some relief from being on buprenorphine. And, and it prevents withdrawal, but it doesn't have the the full effect of, say, heroin or oxycodone or something like that. It, it's not You can't overdose on it. How does that work with methadone and Vivitrol? Methadone is a full agonist, so the more you take, the more effect it has. Uh, you could, it's quite easily easy to overdose on methadone. Uh, if you take, you know, more than prescribed, um, it's a it's also a you know good pain medication. Um, so it's a full agonist, but it has a long half life. So that's why it was originally used. If you take it once a day, it prevents withdrawal. 
basically. Vivitrol is naltrexone, and that's an antagonist, an opioid antagonist. So it, it attaches to the opioid receptors, but it blocks them. So nothing, once, once you take naltrexone, you could um, then go out and take heroin and it would have no effect because the opioid receptors are blocked. The biggest problem with naltrexone is that if you take it while you're habituated to the opioids, it will put you into withdrawal and that can be kind of nasty. So in general, you have to be off of your opioids, including off of um, buprenorphine, suboxone, for seven to 10 days before it's safe to give you Vivitrol. That makes me wonder about something we've heard. Abusing heroin, even after using Vivitrol, if it cuts the craving, it eliminates the craving, and you can't get high, what would make someone go out and use heroin? That's a, that's a great illustration of how addiction is a complicated process, and it's not all biochemical. If the person is on Vivitrol, they're not getting any pharmacologic effect from the heroin because all their receptors are blocked. So they're kind of wasting their money. But if you're used to shooting heroin whenever you're at a certain place or with certain people, you know, those are powerful reinforcers. If you go back to the same place with the same people, you're going to want to use, even if you're not getting any physical effect from it. Is there the same sort of detox requirement for Suboxone as there is for Vivitrol? I always tell patients starting on Suboxone that the biggest danger to Suboxone is if you take it too early before you're in at least moderate withdrawal, it will send you into withdrawal. But as long as they wait 12 to 24 hours after their last dose of heroin, uh, they don't have to be in full-blown severe withdrawal. They can just take that first dose. We usually have them take a half dose for the first time they take it. So they, they get into the early stages of withdrawal. They're going into a little bit of withdrawal several times a day. You know, this is not new to them. They know their bodies and stuff. And I just say, you know, wait, wait a couple hours more than what you would usually do if you're injecting heroin. I don't see much problems with that. So occasionally they'll say, I want to be on Suboxone, or they'll talk to them and decide that Suboxone is a good idea. They'll show up here Tuesday evening and they've used heroin, you know, that morning. And midnight or the next morning, they can take their first dose of Suboxone. Is there a certain type of addiction or a certain type of person where Suboxone works better, and then in another situation, Vivitrol or Methadone work better for someone else? Um, So a lot of it's patient choice, what they are more comfortable with. Most of the people we see here and start on Suboxone are actively using either heroin or illicit opioids, and they don't particularly want to go through withdrawal for seven to 10 days in order to get on Vivitrol. But sometimes if people have been in prison, they've been through the withdrawal there. And in fact, sometimes the prison gives them Vivitrol, gives them an injection of Vivitrol before they leave the prison, which is really a a good move because... They lose their tolerance. They get discharged from prison. They do okay for a day or two or sometimes a week or two. They go out, start using heroin, and they remember how much they used to use, not realizing they've lost their tolerance. And so that could be a fatal dose. In your experience, 
What conditions set up someone to have the best success on MAT? You know, when I first started doing this 15 years ago, my colleague at LGH, who was the first to do it, I was the second, he said, you know, if they're not 40 or over, they don't succeed. That you got to go through a few years of addiction. Now, that's clearly an exaggeration. We've had people in their early 20s do well. But there is something to, you know, people have to kind of reach rock bottom, just like alcoholics and so forth. So if they've been there and they really want to change, I, th I think, you know, the most important variable is does the person want to change? Do they want to get their life together? Um, and if they've reached that point and they work with us and they work with the program, it's a pretty high success rate. But when people have been sent here because um, somebody else tells them they have a problem that they're not convinced, they're likely going to, I mean, they just stop coming, right? So uh, there's nothing about Suboxone that if you stop taking Suboxone, you're, you're, you know, within a day or two, you're on the streets looking for heroin. So another example of people who do really well is that are pregnant so suddenly they have some people in their lives that need them. Pregnant women probably have the highest percentage of following through and doing well. And what would you estimate that percentage to be? You know, if they stay on the medicine, they keep coming, it's 100%. If they don't come back, then I don't have any control of it. So, What are you seeing? Are you, uh, I mean, what, what are you seeing on, overall on patients like... Half of them keep going. Oh, I think it's much higher than oh, it's half. Much half yeah. Higher. yeah. Like, what would you say, just roughly? Um, Sixty to eighty percent. Oh, good. So. And do they keep coming back after once they have given birth? Yeah, yeah. Because if they stop, they're going to go through withdrawal. They're going to get in trouble. Somebody's going to take their baby away. Uh, they're usually the highest motivated people. Young, young mothers. What are the common myths that are going around regarding MAT that might keep someone from using this type of recovery treatment? So I would say the most common thing we hear is that you're just substituting one drug for another. And, and that's, that's a pernicious belief because that keeps people from coming. And, um, the, the data says that they're much more likely to be successful to be on medically assisted treatment for months or for a couple years or maybe indefinitely. Um, and so the, what they're sometimes told in like AA meetings and so forth, they're, they're occasionally not welcome in 12-step programs. What you just said would prove that one drug isn't just being substituted for another. You're describing someone who is in active addiction on heroin and they don't have anything, whereas someone with MAT can have a somewhat normal life. What are the other problems you run into as an MAT provider? So when we're seeing a new patient, the first question we, we have to ask is, are you really addicted? Okay. Um, and usually the answer is quite, quite obvious, but in this day and age, you know, there's a street value to Suboxone. It's possible somebody would come in trying to scam us. Uh, there's, I don't, I don't see much evidence of that. But, you know, so there's a difference between somebody who has dabbled in heroin and used it a few times, but is not truly addicted. So are they addicted? If they're addicted, do they want to stop and why do they want to stop? And then the second component of that is we, 
we try to get at, you know, how confident are you in this? It's not uncommon for people to have been through, you know, 30-day rehab programs four or five times in the past. And now they're finally at the point of saying, you know, I keep doing this, but I always seem to relapse. Can you help us? And that's that's the kind of thing that Suboxone is really good at, is preventing those relapses. So you said you did this 15 years ago. I didn't even know we had a heroin epidemic 15 years ago. Probably about 2004 or 2005, I started. And did they have Suboxone then, or was mm-hmm. it just... Yeah. Oh, I always think of methadone as being the... Yeah, so methadone's been around since the uh, 1960s. Um, Suboxone, I believe, was first marketed in around 2001, 2002. And they actually, Congress passed a law to allow for the office treatment using Suboxone. Methadone can only be given in federally um, qualified methadone clinics. Uh, and when I first started this, there was not one in Lancaster. People had to go to Coatesville every day to get their methadone. There's now, for several years now, there's been a methadone treatment center here. But by and large, methadone, um, you have to go every day for the first months. Eventually, they'll, you know, give you enough for a weekend and stuff like that. So methadone is a lot of work. Um, Generally speaking, if people fail Suboxone, we um, recommend methadone. Not Vivitrol. Not, no. If people fail Suboxone, they're not going to do well on Vivitrol. So Vivitrol, all you have to do is not come in for your monthly appointment, and, and just like that, you're not protected if you don't come in for your monthly injection. So the methadone program, you know, you have to go every day. So people who need more structure are going to do better on methadone. Do you feel it's safe for people to be on Suboxone for a pretty long time, or do you try to wean them off? What we are saying... Uh, to ourselves and to our patients is, you know, if you're diabetic, we don't try to wean you off your insulin. This is a chronic disease. Many patients have been through years of addiction. If they feel that they need Suboxone to function normally, there's no time limit on it. And I would say that's probably the biggest group of um, patients. They're not eager to get off something that they feel has saved their life, sometimes literally. Other people do want to get off. They don't want to be tied to coming into the doctor every month and having their urine tested and so forth. And so generally, I try to encourage those people to stick with it for a year, and then we can gradually wean you off. And sometimes we, you know, we get them down from 16 milligrams to 8 milligrams or 4 milligrams, and then they just stay there. They, they said, you know, that's, that's enough. I want to just stay. What do you recommend a given patient should do in case of a relapse while enrolled in the program? So with the exception of diverting, we don't kick people out because they relapse. And people do have that concern. And so what we tell them right up front is we can only help the person we know about. If you've had a relapse, tell us. Don't wait for us to see it on the urine. Tell us and we'll come up with a plan. But we don't don't toss people out. Now, if there's a persistent pattern of failure, you know, if week after week, they're positive for opioids or they're positive for other illicit substances. We're pretty strict about you can't be in a Suboxone program and abusing methamphetamines, okay? It works on the same pleasure center in the brain. You're undermining your recovery by using those other things. It's not once and and you're out. It's we have to come up with a plan to address this. For most addictive substances, there's not something like Suboxone. That's, why, that's one of the reasons that the drug and alcohol 
counseling is so important. What about the demand for the Suboxone? Have you seen that change over the years? Is there more demand for every type of MAT service? It has gone up substantially over the last five years. So I, I guess the bottom line is that if somebody wants help, help is there. Um, you just have to ask for it. That's all for Jonesing this week. Next week, we're going to talk about the connection between childhood trauma and addiction. When I was using, I was the junkie that all the other junkies would talk about. What do you mean? I was the one that made other junkies feel better about themselves. They were like, well, at least I'm not as bad as this guy over here in the corner. This podcast was produced by the Partnership for Public Health, a nonprofit organization in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We would like to thank the Lancaster County Community Foundation for sponsoring this podcast series. We'd also like to thank Colonel Collin, also known as C.J. Shuby. He's a talented musician in long-term recovery himself. He graciously allowed us to use his music. Catch more episodes of Jonesing on our website, partnershipforpublichealth.org, and find us on Stitcher and iTunes. If you know someone struggling with addiction, have them call the National Helpline, 1-800-662-HELP.